0: Hi, thanks for joining me again. This is Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. And uh, remember, I'm going to two podcasts a week, so if you have a chance, I hope you can uh, listen often and uh, pick up some good ideas for books for your own bookshelf. Today, I'm doing a book that I haven't done before. It's called A Christian's Pocket Guide to Islam. And the author, I would just butcher his last name, so I'm just going to spell it S-O-O-K-H-D-E-O. So uh, it's an excellent book. It's short, really informative, written uh, so everybody can understand it. It's got sections on the origin of Islam, uh, then Islamic beliefs and practices, and that's the one I wanna look at especially. Uh, a chapter on the Quran, the five pillars of Islam, women in Islam, Islamic history, and diversity in Islam. And then they have a, several appendices. One is uh, the life of Muhammad, uh, historical development of Islamic sects, uh the, the surahs of the Quran and then an excellent bibliography, really good. So I thought maybe as a good place to start, I would just read parts of the preface, what he was up to when he wrote this. He said basically he's trying to outline the beliefs and practices and history of Islam. Why? So that Christians and other non Muslims can understand their Muslim friends and neighbors. So it's not necessarily to use as a weapon to, to beat over the head of a Muslim, just so we can understand them. And he said, the problem is that we have such a different worldview between uh, Christians and Muslims that it can lead to a lot of misunderstanding. And he said he hopes that the book would help non-Muslims to have a good relationship with a Muslim neighbor or colleague. And I think that's great, a good relationship. That is important. And he said, uh, we can avoid creating some unnecessary stumbling blocks uh, if we understand something about the Muslim faith he said you know a lot of things are written and said about islam that really aren't true he said we shouldn't misrepresent islam or accuse muslims of beliefs and practices that are not theirs and i'd say amen to that and i think that's so true when we're dealing with any kind of different religious belief we we need to ask questions like what is it that you do believe because we may have read about their belief but what's the reality in their own lives so he said furthermore we have to remember that muslims are people They're just ordinary humans like us with joys and sorrows and fears and anxieties that we experience. And we need to be filled with the compassion of Christ, compelled by his love. But we have to be faithful as well to Christ and his teachings. So he says we can't alter or we can't bend uh, the teachings of Jesus in any way. Okay, well, I want to do the chapter, which is his second chapter. It's a long chapter, so I'll probably end up going through some... uh, We'll go through it quickly, I guess, is a way to put it. It's uh, Chapter 2, Islamic Beliefs and Practices. And uh, so there are six articles of faith that he starts with. One is a belief in Allah, and Allah being a unity. If you suggest there are partners with Allah, and that's, of course, what they think about the Trinity, if you believe that, then that's called shirk. That's uh, the worst of sins. Allah is one. He has no equal. He has no partner. And so that's very different than the Christian understanding of God. When we pray to God, we're not praying to Allah. I don't think there's any way that we can say the two are essentially the same. Allah has too many different characteristics than the Christian God. Okay, a second belief of Islam is in the existence of angels. Now, what I thought was fascinating about this, I'd never heard this before. He says, after death, Muslims will suffer what they call the torments of the grave. There are two angels and they sit that corpse up and they ask it, who's your Lord? What's your religion? Who's your prophet? And of course, a Muslim should answer Allah, Islam, Muhammad. And then that person hopes to go to paradise and avoid the torments. But now this is crucial. This can't be guaranteed because of a Quranic verse that indicates Allah will lead astray those who have led an unjust life And so this author says, you end up with a lot of fatalism among Muslims. They're all afraid of having to endure the torments of this grave. And the torments are specific. I mean, I read this and I was horrified. Can you imagine if you're a young kid and you're growing up in the Muslim faith and this is what they tell you. First, the angels pulverize the body with a huge iron hammer. Next, the grave tightens around the corpse till its bones crack and the soul inside is suffocated. Then a tomb snake, or maybe multiple snakes, and possibly dragons, eat the flesh. But that flesh regrows again, only to be eaten again. It says, the screams of the tormented dead can be heard by all of creation, except for humans. And uh, certain spirits, I guess. Well, you can imagine Muslims be desperately afraid of these torments. How can they avoid them? The author says there are three options. If you want to go directly to paradise without going into the grave and being tormented, these are the three. And I know many of you are going to have a pretty good idea what the third one is, but let me just mention the other two. If you die on a Friday, I don't understand that one. I don't know why Friday. Uh, if you die of a stomachache, that seems pretty arbitrary, doesn't it? You die of a stomach ache, and you can avoid uh, being in the grave. Now, the third one is the one most of us have heard of. If you die as a martyr... So if you're a suicide bomber, I always thought, well, you know, I'd always heard, well, they have suicide bombers because they want to go to paradise. Okay, well, that's true, but they want to skip over these torments, these horrible torments. I'd never heard of that. Anyway, so there's some information about there, about the uh, the existence of angels. Number three, third thing they believe in are that Allah has revealed his commands to men through a hundred and four sacred books, but only four remain. And that's the Pentateuch of Moses, the Psalms of David, the Gospels or the New Testament in general, you know, featuring Jesus, and the Quran with Muhammad. And it's actually claimed that Jews and Christians are called the people of the book, that they changed and distorted their own scriptures. So Allah had to send the Quran as the final revelation to mankind. And uh, I, I would like to cover that in another podcast about this idea that Christians and Jews changed and distorted their own scriptures. They have to say that because the scriptures and, uh, let me start the other way, the Quran seems to indicate you should ask a Christian about his or her views because they know a lot of good information thanks to the New Testament. But the problem is the New Testament clashes with the Quran. And so the Muslim has to say, well, originally the New Testament backed up the Quran, but it's been um, butchered and changed and distorted since then. Anyway, so here's a fourth thing that uh, Muslims believe in the role of prophets, that Allah has uh, intervened in human history. And they don't deny any of the prophets of the Old Testament or John the Baptist and even Jesus. They do not worship Muhammad, they consider him an example or a model. And then a fifth thing they believe in is the Day of Judgment and then resurrection after death. Now, whether a human is going to go finally to paradise or to hell is decided only at the Day of Judgment. Until then, the dead are in an intermediate state awaiting the final verdict. And the Day of Judgment uh, is preceded by all sorts of catastrophes and the Antichrist is going to come. There will be tumults and commotion. The sun will be darkened. And actually... Christ is going to come as a Muslim. And after the resurrection, people wander around during 40 years and then the weighing of deeds on an eschatological scale. And it says, this is from the Quran, those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls. In hell will they abide. So, isn't that interesting? What, what they're basically saying is it comes down to your deeds. And you'd never know if you're a Muslim. You talk about fear and dread when they approach the end of their lives. They don't know if they've done enough. Have they really made that balance work out right? Oh, that's an amazing area that Christianity can enter and talk about having absolute knowledge of where you're going to end up because of Jesus. Um, let's see. Then uh, Allah has some sovereign decrees and uh, humans basically just have to submit to his will and it's inscrutable. And it, there's a lot about absolute predestination and there's more of it later on in the book. But there are three expressions in uh, Islamic uh, literature. Maktub means it is written. "maqdur" it is decided. And Kismet, it is my lot. And that shows you the fatalism that's there uh, when they're trying to live their lives. Uh, they can't really control anything. It's all been done for them. Well, another section of this first chapter with well, chapter I'm covering here is on Sharia, Islamic law. And it's been used by uh, all these things of the Quran and the sayings of Muhammad and others. They've combined it all together to create a huge body of rules and regulations. And that's Islamic law, that's Sharia law. And it's so different than Christianity. Christianity doesn't have anything like this. It regulates not only the Muslims' devotional and personal life, but the governing of an entire state. And they have all sorts of rules in there regarding non-Muslims, mainly Jews and Christians. And they're called Dhimmi, and they're treated as a subjugated people. They're certainly second-class citizens. They have to pay a special tax. And another feature, he says, of the Sharia law are all these draconian punishments for certain crimes like amputation for theft or stoning for adultery. And there's a death sentence for any adult male who leaves the faith. Wow, no wonder they stay close to uh, Islam. And and imagine the fear and trepidation if they have some of their visions that apparently a lot of uh, Muslims are having of Jesus and they walk away from the faith. Uh, They're not only getting away from their families who may disown them, but maybe their own lives will be uh, in danger. Then he he talks about the Sharia law when it comes to women. He says it doesn't reflect our idea of equality. Women are considered of lesser value. And uh, we see all these laws concerning things like inheritance and compensation and legal testimony. They are hemmed in and they're restricted. And uh, they're they're treacherous individuals who can lead men astray. So they're really uh, shackled with these laws. Um, Let's see here. Let me do a couple more things here before time runs out here. Christian minorities, if they're in Muslim-majority contexts, they're despised and discriminated against. The Sharia teaching about apostasy says it's so dreadful. There's terrible shame felt by a Muslim family if one of the members converts to Christianity. And the goal of Muslim radicals is to introduce full Sharia all over the world. And then um, another section here is talking about a doctrine, Taqiyya. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It means dissimulation. And it's, it's how Shias first came up with the idea of how they could deal with persecution. So here's how it goes. Muslims can save their lives by concealing true beliefs. And then it got expanded to say that you can have that kind of deception, not just to save your own life, but to save your honor, or to save property. And so war is a a time where you can be allowed to dissimulate and all. And it's actually any kind of defense of Islam. So many Muslims actually feel completely justified and have no problem or qualms about lying to non-Muslims about the nature of their faith. They really believe they're doing the right thing. They're editing and producing a sanitized version of Islam and Islamic history to non-Muslims. And because it's okay, you can do that. You're saving your life and you're saving uh, Muslims in general. And so now we've got Muslims embarking on what seems to be what the author calls a deliberate plan to enlarge and elevate the place of Islam in all sorts of academic disciplines. And we're seeing that all across the Western world. And the message that we're getting is that Islam was completely peaceful and blameless, and everything bad that happened was the result of Western imperialism. And they've rewritten history to make all sorts of false or exaggerated claims about Islamic influence on medicine or science and architecture. He gives some examples. Uh, Some Muslims claim that Napoleon converted to Islam, or that Muslim explorers reached America before Columbus, that Islam got uh, made its way into Australia in the ninth century, and they claim that the rapid spread of Islam was peaceful in those early years and not imposed by force. But the bad Crusaders, boo! They were an unprovoked European assault that was colonialism on peace-loving Muslim inhabitants. Well, that's not true at all, and I've covered that in another podcast. Uh, Jesus has a prominent place in the Quran. Uh, however, his deity and his atoning death are definitely denied. And then, uh, as I'm kind of uh, one, uh, maybe, yeah, let me just finish up here. There's a lot of material in this chapter. But uh, he talks about the gospel of Barnabas. Many Muslims say that's the real truth about Jesus. He claims that Barnabas claims that he was one of the 12 disciples and he wrote this book. denies that Jesus is the son of God. It denies the crucifixion. It declares Muhammad will be the Messiah, which is against the Quran. It's the Gospels, and Quran agree that the title Messiah belongs just to Jesus. But, you know, true scholars agree that the Gospel of Barnabas was written in the Middle Ages. It was certainly not in the time of Jesus. Um, I'm going to skip over. Okay, let's go to uh, relating to non-Muslims, because I think this is really important. He, he takes up the word jihad, which means struggle. Now, it could be just a spiritual struggle to be morally pure. Okay, that's fine. It can mean trying to correct wrong and support the right. That's good. But thirdly, it can mean an armed struggle in the name of Allah. And that's one, of course, that has uh, really raised a lot of problems in our modern world. And according to Sharia law, jihad is one of the most basic religious duties that a Muslim can carry out. Classical Islamic teaching says you've got classical Islam divides the world into two parts, the house of Islam and the house of war. Now, they call it the house of war. That's, uh, uh, that's where the non-Muslims dwell. And you can see that that says Muslims are required to go to war with non-Muslims to conquer and subdue them, add that territory to the house of Islam. And he says this uh, idea of jihad developed pretty gradually early verses of the Quran talk about not being confrontational. And then later, defensive fighting was allowed in the Quran. Then it was permitted to initiate attacks on pagans. finally, there are commands to fight all unbelievers. Now, that's not just pagans, but Jews and Christians as well. And it's that final stage of that doctrine of jihad that inspires the militants of today. So actually, the idea of, of being more aggressive and fighting move through the Quran into the later verses and because they believe in something called abrogation that the later verses verses can contradict and do away with the earlier verses then those warlike verses take over and that's what a lot of the modern Muslims are going to go for. I'll finish up with one short uh, paragraph here on dawah that's an Islamic term he says for missionary outreach and that's a duty not just for individual Muslims but for Muslim states They've got to convert non-Islamic states to Islam. And that's going on today. Uh, there's a lot of money coming out of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and places like that. They're financing a lot of these dawa activities, missionary activities. And uh, in the West, the author says, A lot of half-truths that make Islam sound good are being presented without mentioning things uh, like the death sentence for leaving Islam or about uh, how women are treated. So, as I said, that was just the first uh, major section of the book, and I highly recommend it. It's very easy to read. Again, it's called The Christian's Pocket Guide to Islam. It's been out uh, 10, 15 years, so you should be able to find some copies. Well, again, thanks. We're going to do two of these podcasts a week, and uh, I'll be doing another one soon. I hope you can listen. Thanks.